0: Hi, this is Laura, and this is Luli, and you are listening to Astela Around the World.
1: We will be zooming out of Brazil to explore the worlds of extraordinary global tech thought leaders in a deep dive into their stories, their inspirations, views on tech investing, and perspectives on the different aspects and trends happening in the local and global tech ecosystems.
0: Estella is an early stage Brazilian based VC. Stay tuned and welcome to Estella around the world. We have here today with us at Estella around the world Taylor Claussen. Taylor is a dear Calvin fellow from my class. He has a very interesting uh, trajectory and journey. I always wanted to uh, to bring him here to talk and to tell us uh, about his uh, learning and uh, uh, career to the VC. He is an early stage investor and is currently working on a thesis around developer productivity at uh, Abstraction Capital. He has spent uh, his whole career investing in or working at startups, loves to think about markets and learn new things. He often reads, occasionally writes, and sends out an every-so-often newsletter with a few intriguing and very inspiring uh, things that he has been pondering. So Taylor, uh, thank you for coming, thank you for participating, and uh, welcome.
2: (laughs) I'm glad to be here. I'm super excited we finally get to do this.
0: Yeah, we were expecting you. (laughs) Let us start with uh, a bit of uh, your background. If you could tell us a bit your trajectory, what spikes, uh, your interest in working with our startups and uh, and what uh, led you to the VC uh, world.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I think most VCs I know sort of became a VC by accident, and I definitely don't buck that trend. So I grew up in, in the Midwest, in, in the US, in Kansas City, not a region known for a venture capital or startup ecosystem. And it, in undergraduate, I studied accounting. And it took me three years of studying that to realize that being a CPA would be an absolutely terrible job that I wouldn't enjoy. So uh, I ended up just kind of like stumbling into an analyst role in a seed stage venture fund when I graduated. And this venture fund was a little bit unusual in that it was affiliated with state government. So they took economic development money and they invested it in startups. They ran a variety of programs, but I spent almost all my time on the seed investing. I was there for three years and I left with a few distinct conclusions. Number one, I love startups. There's nothing like it. I wanted to stay close to it. Number two, we did a lot of life sciences and that was never my speed. I just am not smart enough to appreciate those. The third conclusion was I want nothing to do with government or politics ever again in my entire life. I'm not built for that. So I left that group and joined a startup. It had actually been a portfolio company. This was late 2009, early 2010. This company was at the end of the first clean tech wave, so we made products for streetlights and parking lot lights. It was a great experience. I was an early, I was the first non-sales, non-engineering hire, so kind of the utility infielder that followed the CEO around and did a little bit of everything. We scaled the company to a few million in sales. Candidly, we could never solve for working capital. Hardware companies are hard, and this was right after the global financial crisis, and we just couldn't come up with a sustainable way to finance inventory. We sold that company in 2012, not a zero, but not a life changing outcome. It was a good experience overall. And from there, I knew I wanted to get back into venture investing and I wanted to stay in Kansas City. Those Venn diagrams hardly overlap at all. It's gotten a little bit better since 2012, but it's still a thin layer. I ended up joining a group called Open Air Equity Partners. OpenAir Air is somewhere in between a principal investor group and a, a multifamily office. They have about $100 million under management, but 80% of that comes from within the partnership. So we didn't have a traditional fund structure. We didn't you know, have outside LPs that were the majority of our fund. But the only asset class we touched was early stage direct. There was no fund, real estate, public investing. It was just startups. And we thematically concentrated around Internet of Things and connected devices, fintech, and vertical software for the telco ecosystem, wireless carriers, MSOs, cable operators, that sort of thing. There were some really nice hits in that portfolio. It was a very concentrated, hands on model. We were very involved with portfolio companies and sometimes we would even start and incubate companies. I would hesitate to call it a studio because studios are very process driven and this was more opportunistic. Anyway, when I joined OpenAIR in 2012, it felt blindingly obvious to me that software was the most important thing going on in the world. And I thought, well, I know how to look at a startup pitch deck. I know how to read financial statements, but I don't know anything about software under the hood. And so in 2012, I started teaching myself how to write code. And over the years, that went from just tinkering nights and weekends to building small side projects to eventually helping portfolio companies. And I completely fell in love with sort of the the life cycle of software development and all the processes going on in it. Hacker culture in general—it's just a—it's a—it's a fun group of people. I relate well to engineers, even though they would—you know—I'm not a peer. No one would hire me as an engineer. I'm, I'm sloppy and incompetent. I've never done that scale. If you give me long enough, I'll hack it together. And over the years, that just became the thing keeping me awake at night. So, at the beginning of 2020, I left to launch a new fund focused specifically on tools for software developers. So. The main buzzwords we'd slap onto that are DevTools, DevOps, infrastructure, low-code, basically anything that has a software developer as its primary user.
0: Oh, very interesting. And when you decided to go to the thesis of uh, helping developers and you had the experience of uh, coding, What was exactly the pain points that you thought you could solve um, if you could fund uh, other startups to help the developers?
2: You know, it's a great question, and I take a pretty broad and opportunistic view. I mean, the thesis for the fund is basically that it doesn't matter whether you're Google and Facebook or whether you're Home Depot and Coca-Cola. Software development is a key need in your company, and it either is today or will be soon a bottleneck. Developers are in short supply. That's only going to get worse. Their time is precious. They're very... Interested in working on complex problems, so they're kind of a tough constituency within any professional organization. And so, my core belief is that developer time is a precious resource on any company's balance sheet, and we need developers focusing on things that add value to their core products and not other things that just Hoover up their time but don't move the needle.
1: So, Taylors, we learned that you launched Abstraction pre-pandemic, right? You spent a big portion of your career at open air equity and then <sighs> it wasn't even the pandemic bug. It was pre-pandemic. You made the move. We'd love to hear like what spiked you to do that. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the birth of abstraction partners.
2: Absolutely. In hindsight, January twenty was not the right time to launch a new fund. So I thought I would have a first close in June of 2020. I ended up just when the pandemic hit, it wiped out my fundraising funnel. So I finally had a first close in December of 20. The thing I will say is that horrifying you know, effects on the globe aside, the pandemic ended up being a tremendous tailwind for the thesis. And I think the performance of some of our portfolio companies, everyone realized that digital transformation was way behind and we are going to be playing catch up for a while. And so after the initial shock of everything shutting down, it ended up being a really good thing.
0: So you decided to birth the fund as a solo VC, which was very brave. Um, (laughs) Tell us a little bit about how you set up daily dynamics so that you can test yourself, your conviction. And uh, what have you created in terms of processes and uh, how you organize yourself to do a little bit of everything?
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's a fabulous question. I will say that I think the line between brave and foolish is a very gray area and I'm not sure that we could say yet whether I'm brave or foolish. I will say I'm pretty well suited to work alone. I'm pretty, you know, I'm a mile wide, and inch deep in a lot of things. I've been started I've been at the start of many companies early on when they're doing a little bit of legal, a little bit of finance, a little bit of tech, a little bit of everything. So I was fortunate in that. That being said, you keyed in on what is absolutely the hardest part of doing it solo, which is managing your time. And in reality, between deal flow, working with existing portfolio companies, and just sort of administration, there's probably a few close to full-time jobs in there. This is something I'm still figuring out. I'll, I'll say that I have a bias towards the notion that founders are my customers, not investors, and my LPs know that. So at the end of the day, if I have one hour to give, and there's a portfolio company that needs something urgent, an LP that wants to talk about something, I go portfolio company first. So I think it's one of those things that I'll be forever tinkering with and figuring out and changing and adapting over time. When I was actively fundraising, as well, that became even more complicated because it's like you know you you have to spend time at the top of the funnel and the mid funnel with investors. Otherwise, there is no fund, but at the same time, I was investing and raising at the same time, so it was kind of a complicated calculus. One of the upsides that's pretty well documented about being a solo GP is that I can move quickly. I'm not beholden to a committee to make a decision. I don't have a really lengthy, cumbersome process. The risk I run with that is that this fund is basically an exercise in my own biases and myopia, and that's the thing that keeps me awake at night. So counteracting that is, is just constantly questioning myself, You know, making sure that I'm writing memos that actually reflect what the actual risks are, regardless of how I feel about them. And then I'm also really fortunate between the, the Kaufman Fellows program and operator and just a network of peers where if I have a question that's sort of keeping me awake at night or something where I'm trying to sort out my own internal conviction, there's lots of people like you that I can call quickly and, and get a good opinion.
0: And what about your LP base? Do you choose your investment based also on how they can help you on those or, or not really?
2: You know, not really. It's interesting. So raising a fund, as you guys know, is, is always difficult. And in some sense, you're just trying to balance being opportunistic with strategic. In my case, I raised a $13 million fund on the solo GP. It's a first-time fund. I have a somewhat nebulous track record there were a lot of strikes against me. And so most institutional investors can't or wouldn't look at a fund like this. And I think some of the best fundraising advice I ever got was actually from a founder in my portfolio. And they launched their fundraise the week that lockdown hit. And they had just the company is doing amazingly well, but they had a brutal raise, it took them like four and a half months, they were wrangling small checks. And it was just honestly just bad timing luck. And we did a debrief after they closed their round and he actually wrote a blog post about this. And the thing that he said he realized was instead of trying to convince the non-believers, he should spend time finding the true believers. And that has just stuck in my head as the best fundraising advice anyone has ever given. As a small fund, finding those true believers is honestly just trial and error. In my case, I would say, I, I think I have 46 LPs in this fund and not by dollars, but by volume Probably three quarters of them either work in hedge funds, private equity, or venture capital. So they were predisposed to understand the asset class. Some wanted sector exposure to the thesis. Some wanted stage exposure and liked the sector. So it's kind of a mix. But now I'm fortunate in that my LPs are all very relationship driven. Like they're phenomenal people and they, you never forget people that take a bet on you early when it's not obvious. And that's what they all did. So I'm lucky with my base, but I don't, I wouldn't say that I have necessarily optimized for strategic investors. Though I have some LPs that are actively engaged and and are always kind of making me smarter, which is wonderful. So you just
1: recently raised this fund. So now you have a breather, right? (laughs) When do you expect to start fundraising again? What's the average length of your investment period? And when do you start fundraising again?
2: (laughs) Oh, um, fantastic question. So my final close was December of 2021. And ever since day one, I felt very strongly about having a long investment period. I know that's not very fashionable for a small pre-seed and seed fund these days. They're often deploying in 12 to 24 months. I think time diversity is an underutilized asset in venture. And so the idea of having a long deployment period, uh, it, it puts a few assets on the balance sheet for us. One is that valuations have been, as we all know, historically high lately. Maybe they are in 18 months, maybe they're not. I don't know. But having the possibility that our entry price could drop a little bit is certainly attractive from a return standpoint. The other reason I wanted a long deployment period is a little more practical. I'm a team of one, and I don't want to write 35 checks in a 12-month period. That would be a terrible experience for everyone. So fun too for me is a few years away. Uh, I want to have at least a four-year deployment period and I feel pretty strongly about that.
0: And Taylor, how do you divide your time when you're fundraising and when you're not fundraising I mean in terms of uh, looking and digging into new your, new opportunities versus helping your portfolio of founders I mean do you put any intention on really dividing and having meet recurring meetings with all the founders and uh, looking for your pipeline how do you set (laughs) your strategy.
2: Absolutely. So I think one thing that I would call out in advance is that I don't lead many deals. So I have 22 portfolio companies and I have led two of those rounds so far. Part of the reason for that is building a fund is basically building a new brand. And if I were to try and compete head to head with the big brands in the space today, I'm not going to win that many term sheets. So the idea of being able to sort of sneak into rounds and punch above our weight class in terms of the quality of deal flow we get in, I think is the right strategy for this fund. Obviously, like we've already talked about, founders are my customers. So if one of my founders, he or she has a question that I can help with, I will go out of my way at 10pm at night to dig in with them. But I'm also pretty clear with founders up front, I don't assume I can help you unless you tell me I can or unless I notice something where I obviously can. I have uh, watched over the years, I think a lot of early stage, and this isn't necessarily true at all stages, but particularly in early stage companies, I think a lot of investors try to roll up their sleeves and get engaged. And they do it in ways that don't actually help the founders. I'm not going to invest in a founder unless I believe he or she is competent and can run their business. And if they can, then one of the things I can do is get out of their way and let them do their job well. Now I also raise my hand and say, hey, if there's something I can help you with, your game planning, you know, how to manage burn until your next round, or you want to walk through your fundraising pitch, or you want to think about go to market and devrel, like obviously I'm here for that. And I have conversations like that many times per week. I've also found that there's a little bit of sort of relevance in terms of the life cycle of the portfolio company. So in my pre-seed companies, like some of the deals I've led you know, we speak every week at least because they do want to have a sounding board for the things they're experimenting with and that sort of thing. And then I have other ones where they raised a series B and they're frankly way past the point where I'm going to be that much use to them. And so I think the best thing I can do in those cases is cultivate the relationship and help when it's obvious that I can. And if there's not, then I don't interfere with their time.
1: We're curious about your portfolio companies. Can you share a few of your babies with us? (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I started investing. The first checks I wrote for this fund were actually that same week lockdown hit. So March of 20 were the first few deals. So most of the portfolio is very early. Um, it skews, obviously, very technical. I don't have any non-technical founders in the portfolio. There are no mercenary founders in the dev tool space. It's all engineers who are solving a problem that they relate to. In my case, I was lucky We'll just kind of showcase one of the early wins, a company called Buff, B-U-F, based out of Toronto. And it's an open source company that basically is API schema management. So if you have a really complicated microservices architecture at scale, like almost every big tech company you or I could name does, then all of a sudden how those services communicate with each other and sort of how the API contract between them involves become really important. And so the technology that Buff uses is uh, something that originated at Google many years ago called Protocol Buffers, and then a a wire-to-wire communication protocol called GRPC. It's one of those things that if you explain to one of your non-technical friends, it takes a lot of context because it's just really deep down the stack. But I connected with Peter, the founder there, and just immediately felt like he was remarkable and believed in the vision for the company. And so we were part of a pre-seed round in May of 2020. And honestly, the company had just took off like a rocket ship. They have since raised a C round, a Series A round, and a Series B round from investors like Lightspeed Edition, Lux, Tiger, and, and Green Oaks, and they just could not be doing a better job of it. So it was one of those cases where it sort of checked every box I look for in a company, and, and I was lucky to be part of it.
0: That's very interesting. Taylor, talking about how you tell your story and how you present yourself to investors. It is not obvious your trajectory. So how do you attract investors? And apparently you did a very good job on that, so I think <laughs> <laughs> your, your history is inspiring. I mean, how did you set out your strategy for fundraising? What kind of investors you focused, and how you told your, your story to have such a wonderful uh, outcome) mm-hmm.
2: Oh, well, I would caveat this with I would self identify as being terrible at fundraising, I realized pretty early on, there's a narrow subset of people in the world that I'm going to relate to well, and they're going to relate to me well. So back to that idea of finding those true believers, raising for a small first time fund, that's too small to be institutional is tricky, because you're generally talking to high net worths and family offices, which comprise the vast majority of my LP base. And while they're phenomenal, successful, brilliant people, They don't necessarily have a mandate to invest. They're very opportunistic. The processes may or may not follow the same trajectory in each case. So I would say that top of funnel, just finding conversations to have was always difficult. But I would say the hardest part was qualifying those conversations. Because if you're talking to someone who's invested in one, maybe two venture funds in their entire life, and you're asking them what they're looking for in a venture fund, they may or may not really have an answer to that question other than, well, I got excited by the opportunity. And there's nothing wrong with that. It just makes our jobs as GPs a little bit harder to figure it out. I will say I am not someone who either when I'm pitching or when a startup is pitching to me, I want to be walked through or to walk through a pitch deck slide by slide. I want you to have a conversation with me and I want to have a conversation with you. And if we can both get excited about the same things, then usually it's worth having a follow-up conversation. And so with LPs, it was actually not hard to tell in the first five minutes of conversation whether there was a spark of curiosity. The other thing, and I was fortunate in that, you know, I was building portfolio while I was having conversations. So it got, over time, easier to have conversations because it's less of an idea and more of a going concern where, you know, yes, you're investing in a blind pool, but here's what we've already built. And here's how it's going let's look at a case study, you know, let's let you pick one you like, or pick one that looks intriguing to you. A lot of my LPs are very non technical, too. And in some cases, that was a good thing, because they just said, I'm not technical, I want access to this thesis, you know what you're doing, I'm going to invest in you. And in other cases, they were technical. And it was great, because they said, I totally believe in this and relate to the pain point, I want access to this.
1: I'm totally relating to the fundraising pain points. And to add another layer to that, we, we have to still think about the cultural aspects, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So it depends, like if you're fundraising in the US or you're fundraising Europe or in each part of the world, it can be very different. So, but very interesting perspectives and awareness.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So another objective that's all around the world is to show like there's a development in various ecosystems or tech ecosystems around the world, right? We'd like to speak to different geographies to see like, what is the difference and And what can we relate to our ecosystem in Brazil versus the ones we, you know, that are most famous ecosystems like Silicon Valley and from then on. And you live in Kansas City, right? Right. We know nothing about the ecosystem in (laughs) Kansas City. So what can you share with our audience so they can learn a little bit about what's going on there and um, what are the different aspects in the ecosystem?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm lucky to have spent my whole career here and it's a place I want to be. I love it here. It's a great place to live. It's like many other tier two or tier three midwestern US cities where it's not a very urban population. You know, it's a big suburban sprawl. Great cost of living. You know, we get all four seasons here. You got major sport. It's a good place. I don't know enough about the history to know why, but Kansas City actually has like a really fascinating concentration of High education professional services. So things like tax, CPA firms, law firms, and then also engineering. And I don't mean software engineering, though there is obviously some of that here, but civil, mechanical, architecture, industrial. There's actually, I joke with people because when I go to the Bay Area and they tell me they're an engineer, my brain immediately goes to, oh, like civil or mechanical. Well, they mean software engineer, right? And in Kansas City, that's not the case. When I first started at my first job out of school at that seed fund, in terms of venture, it was a wasteland. There was almost nothing here that even resembles, you know, a West Coast style seed fund. And over the years, that's actually developed quite a bit. There's probably a dozen early stage funds here that do have a geographic or you know regional appetite for the area and focus on more traditional venture sectors and venture scale outcomes, which I think is amazing. And, and there's a lot more going on here than there used to be. If I think about sort of the ecosystem in general, I think uh, for it to really take an inflection point, I think what we need are a three to five year period that has two to three billion dollar plus typical venture backed outcomes. There have been some big tech-ish companies built in Kansas City, companies like Cerner or Garmin. But what those companies did not have that I think really makes a difference for the ecosystem in the long run is traditional venture-backed investing, angel rounds, local investors, and then, you know, downstream investors from everywhere, that's fine. And then the other thing that goes hand in hand with it is a traditional venture-backed employee option pool. And when you have successful exits like that, you know, a density of them in a short period of time, you watch places like Salt Lake City or even New York ten or fifteen years ago, and it just creates a ripple effect out that changes the culture in a meaningful way. So I'm excited to watch that happen over the next few years. We have some really successful late stage companies here that I think have a chance to do that.
0: That's interesting. And uh, moving back to when you launched Abstraction Partners, when you were considering the venture and you thought about risk, what in your mind would be a very successful event, and uh, what kind of uh, failure you would uh, think it could happen in your journey
2: great question so I would say it was actually I was on the fence about about launching it and I had breakfast with a good friend and mentor here in town and I just told him look I know eventually I want to launch a fund I don't feel like I have the track record to do it and he just stopped me and he said okay and if you stay where you're at for another two three years will you have it then and I said probably not he goes okay so you should launch it now because I think you can do it and you should And that just stuck in my head. And it was the push that got me over the line. As I thought about success and failure in that context, I think there were two failure modes. One was to not try. I think it was one of those where it had been burning a hole in me without me realizing it. And and just giving it a shot was important. And then, you know, when the pandemic struck and I'm thinking, what have I done? This is a terrible idea. I'm not going to make it. You know, the question for me was always like small funds. The math is quite difficult. You don't have enough management fee to really make much of a salary or a living on. And while I've been lucky to be part of some good things early in my career, I I can't live with no salary indefinitely. So in my mind, the risk was I'm only able to raise a few million dollars. And I sort of came to the conclusion internally that if I raise a two or three million dollar fund and that's it, then I will drive Uber at nights until I get this figured out because I know I have to do this. And that sort of like internal sense of clarity came pretty quickly. As far as what success looks like, you know, you guys both know well, it's a really difficult industry to know whether you're good at it or not. So, like, I've told my LPs, things are going better than I ever could have imagined, but it's too early to call. Things look great. I don't know whether that's me doing a good job or whether we're just part of a hot market. So, I'm really excited and bullish about the future. Our portfolio companies are building special things. And I I think that's, you know, that's at the end of the day, all we're doing as investors is backing good founders. So success for me is in some sense, I think I've hit the first milestone of the fund is a going concern. And I'm really happy that I took that step. And then, you know, as far as the future goes, we'll have to see. I, obviously, I have benchmarks that I want to hit for my investors and for myself and for fun too. And uh, time will tell.
1: No, really interesting. I think from what you said, yeah, it's, it's very hard because there are different backgrounds and different perspectives from each from VC to VC. But I think there's one thing in common, which is particular positive mindset, right? Which absolutely I think leads into our next question. We're heading towards the end of the conversation. And then we'd like to get philosophical towards the end. So Laura and I have a couple questions we'd love to ask you. Laura, do you want to start with the first philosophical question?
0: Absolutely. How optimistic you are with the future of our life and humanity?
2: I think you know me well enough to know that I'm an optimist. Uh, I'm a very sarcastic person, so sometimes that doesn't come through. I don't think any of us would be good early stage investors if we weren't optimistic. It's really easy to look at a company that is just two people and an idea and sit and be pessimistic about it. I mean, that's anyone can do that. A high school student can do that. So I'm very optimistic in general. And I think I'm very passionate about, you know, I think technology is an amoral force. And sometimes when new technology comes online, we have some catch up to do in terms of morality and ethics. But in general, I think if you look at kind of the arc of human history, technology is what has moved quality of life forward over, you know, for everyone. I mean, certainly we have issues with income disparity and wealth gaps and that sort of thing. And those are tough problems to solve. But desperate poverty has never been lower in human history. And I would attribute that directly to technology.
1: So what are the main issues you would do you believe innovators will address in the years to come? do you think would be poverty? Or did you answer your question already?
2: (laughs) Oh, I don't know, is the answer to that. And I think I'm probably not smart enough to know. One of the things that I have several friends who are investors at at climate funds, and that's something that's been, you know, I don't don't know what uh, this time of year has been like in Sao Paulo for you, but it's been a very bizarre winter and spring year. And so I think that's one of those things where if we apply a lot of, you know, research and funding and investment into that space, I, I do think technology can move the needle. I worry about politics, you know, back to my first job, I realized politics doesn't really help us in a lot of regards. So that one, I don't know if technology can help that problem, but hopefully.
0: That uh, moves us to the next question is why are we... We see a lot of uh, what we can create and and how we can solve problems. Um, We see humanity going backwards uh, with uh, decisions of a war and other stupidities in life. So how far do you dream that we will create uh, solutions we need for having a sustainable life uh, and a sustainable Mm -hmm. environment for the future generations?
2: That's a tough question. I would say I'm probably not qualified to opine on it. I tend to think that if you look back at things like whether it was the space race or all of the original DARPA and ARPA funding in the US, when you really set the wheels in motion to you know harness technology to solve really complicated real world problems... The benefits out from that compound over the years. I mean, you know, many of the things that happened as a result of, you know, fundamental and basic research in the 60s and 70s are still the reason that we have a technology industry today. I think as long as we don't lose sight of that and as long as we continue to invest in those things and prioritize those things over maybe something that feels more pressing but doesn't compound over time, I think we'll be okay. I'm optimistic we'll be okay.
1: Do you think that anything that you mentioned and you know what you look at and what you believe and what you're mostly avoiding, I guess, in the political front, does any of that guide your investment decisions?
2: Ooh, interesting question. It may in a practical sense, but probably not in a philosophical sense. So I think like, for example, I tend to really not invest in things that have a go-to-market motion in a regulated industry. Now, I also invest in a space where that's not super common apart from basic data compliance. So I'm lucky in that. I think other than that, it's probably not a direct outcome in terms of how I look at deals.
0: And Taylor, before we move to the, the very final icebreaker, what kind of recommendation you would give or you give for emerging managers?
2: (laughs) You know, I actually give similar advice. Well, one is that piece of advice that one of my founders gave me, which is don't waste time trying to convince non-believers find the true believers. That's easier said than done. And I think we all go through an iterative process to find those true believers and what that cohort of people is. I think whether you're a startup or a fund or you you could start a dry cleaning business, any type of new venture part of what you have to do is figure out a way to survive long enough and show enough momentum to just make things happen. And it, I firmly believe that if you do those things, it may not work out the way you want, but you will have done everything you can. And so in my case, even when you know raising investor dollars is a slog or my first close is a tiny fraction of what I thought it, it would be, the question hovering in the back of my mind is, okay, well, what can I do? to actually move the needle and show people that this is happening and and it's exciting. And so one of my most frequent pieces of advice for emerging managers that are raising their first fund is send out monthly or quarterly if you have to, but better monthly updates to existing investors and then to new investors. They don't have to be a New York Times article It can just be some bullet points. Here's what's going on. Here's what I'm seeing. People get excited about that. And it keeps you top of mind. And and it just shows that there's something going on even when you're not talking. And I think that buys you a lot of goodwill.
0: That's an awesome advice, because sometimes we think there's nothing new because it's our daily routine and uh, reverting this mindset that people that are not on our daily business could actually find uh, something different and joy on, on listening to us is, is very interesting. Yeah, well said. <laughs> awesome. So moving to our final icebreaker and uh, just keep in mind that those questions we ask are uh, the same for everybody because one day we will put all of this on a on a database and compare <laughs>
2: yeah that's right i'll buy a copy <laughs> we'll write a book on it
0: <laughs> <laughs> so tell us what are you currently excited about and something that I, you're scared about
2: well <laughs> oh, that's interesting i well, actually i would say that they're probably the same thing one of the things that you know we have all watched over the past 2 years maybe longer is there has been an influx of new investing dollars into the startup ecosystem across the world. There's never been more dry powder in the history of mankind at growth or at seed. It's kind of all over the board. And then you watch, you know, groups like Tiger and Addition and Dragoneer and, and Kotu and these groups that just have seemingly endless balance sheets coming in and investing earlier and earlier. And I'm very much a... Of the mind that as managers, our job is to play the game on the field, not to ask whether you know this game is, should be happening or not. It is happening. Those are the market conditions we're investing in. And I think it's our job to figure out how to navigate those for our LPs. And so the thing that scares me is we have too many dollars chasing too few high quality deals and valuations go up and up and up. And there's pretty good historical precedent for times like that not ending well. The thing that has me excited about it is I don't know what your pipeline looks like. I have never in my entire life seen so many high-quality backable deals from credible founders. And so part of me wonders if one of the kind of second-order effects of all of these venture dollars coming into the ecosystem is that founders are more you know willing to start something that maybe they wouldn't have a few years ago. And back to that optimism for humanity, I think the more shots on goal we get as a world in terms of technology that might change everything, that's a net good. While a lot of people like to bemoan the high valuations, I mean, I don't like high valuations any more than the next guy. I think it's easy to overlook the fact that it also means there are more companies being started and financed that maybe wouldn't be otherwise. And I tend to think that's a net good.
0: Yeah, totally agree. And by the way, our it's uh, also our impression about the improvement of pipelines um, here in Brazil as well. Uh, a lot of uh, second timers, third timers coming back, and uh, yeah. and it's I wouldn't say that it's not the case that uh, we didn't have uh, missionary people before, but today it's easier for missionaries to put their causes uh, in practice. So it's really interesting and it's totally enjoyable to talk to these guys and to learn from them and to give them uh, resources to solve what they are seeing that can be better, right?
2: Yeah, no doubt. We have the best job in the world. There's no question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So awesome. Thank you so much for the interesting conversation. And uh, when we <laughs> planted the Astella around the world, I was never thinking about going to the Tigers and auditions of the World because I wanted people to tell about their daily ground battle, to look for uh, <laughs> new thesis, spaces. And I think uh, early stage investment is something to play on the ground.
2: Yeah. I agree.
0: No matter where you are. And that's the thing. I mean, I wanted to talk to people that is on the ground. <laughs> all over.
2: Yeah, no, I, I feel the same way. My favorite conversations are with people that are doing that hand-to-hand combat. So <laughs> it's good. Thank you, Taylor. Yeah, thank you both. This was wonderful.
0: Yeah, wonderful conversation. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Bye. Fuck. <laughs> So why?
1: Oops! I think she froze.
0: I lost Laura too. Okay. the okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll same. To, to give it hold <laughs> on. <laughs> I think it's about like you know testing our patient. It's
0: good.
1: It's good. It's good.
0: It's It's good. It's good. It's It's all right. So, let me do it again. Sorry guys. Uh connection problems. <laughs> awesome. <laughs>